Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, we ask that your spirit would now fill your people, that we might follow the example of your son and find all the joy and the blessing that are ours waiting there. Use your word and your spirit now for our good and for your glory. We, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Daniel mentioned today, we're continuing our series on prayer mentors, and we want to be mentored by Jesus today in what I believe to be a bit of a lost art. Um, it's the practice of spending extended times alone with the Father in prayer. And uh, this has been um, the source of my sanity for many years as a pastor, and so I'm glad to commend it to you, first from the example of Christ, but also from my, my experience in, in following Him. But our culture is sweeping us away from this practice in a flood of hurry. Um, books are being written describing our culture this way. This is a book called Faster, The Acceleration of Just About Everything. They didn't even have time to include the vowels, right? Um, Here's another one. Uh, Describes our culture beautifully. Crazy busy. Have you ever described your life that way? Could you? Crazy busy. Back in the 50s, um, there was a thing called hurry sickness that was diagnosed. This is back in the 50s it was diagnosed. Symptoms of hurry sickness include things like this. If you're eating lunch at your desk while also checking emails and talking on the phone, that's a symptom of hurry sickness. Um, If you do something else while on a conference call or if you feel compelled to do something something else even while you're brushing your teeth, that's an example of hurry sickness. Um, impatience in talking with people, getting frustrated in a checkout line or in traffic, even if it's moving. Um, if you're microwaving something for 30 seconds and you feel the urge to do something else during those 30 seconds, you probably have hurry sickness. They say there's a, there's a guy named uh, Jolly, he's uh, Richard Jolly, he's a London business school prof. And he says, one of a sure sign is that if you're on an elevator and you repeatedly push the closed door button, okay? Now, now I want to bust your bubble. What he says is that about half of those buttons are not actually connected to anything but a light bulb. They're what's called a mechanical placebo. And it's just intended to make you feel better while you're pushing the button. Um, He says about 95% of his managers that he's engaged over the past 10 years, he could diagnose with hurry sickness. Um, There's another doctor, Susan Cohen. She's at um, Massachusetts General Hospital. She puts it this way. She says, in the past few years, I observed an epidemic of sorts, patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, yet it's easy to recognize the condition is excessive busyness. And I just, did you listen to the the symptoms there? It seems to me just wrong that you can be hurrying like crazy and one of the symptoms is gaining weight. That's just wrong, right? Um, But as troubling as those symptoms might be, 
There's a greater symptom for those of us who follow Jesus that happens when we get, when we get crazy busy, when that, when that describes our life. Um, and that symptom is that we can find ourselves often running ahead of God. Running ahead of God and sometimes running without God as a result. Uh, listen, listen to what Isaiah said about this in Isaiah 30. Stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, this, that was their plan, without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the perfection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. If you turned your Bible another page to the very next chapter of Isaiah, he says it again a different way. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You know, that, that describes us far too often. And today, today, during this time, Jesus is inviting us to live a different way, a way that is anchored in the deepening practice of extended times alone with the Father in prayer. Now, there are lots of ways to pray. Um, the Scripture has many. Um, I'm going to break them into two groups today. I'm going I'm to break them. I'm going to call them sustaining prayer practices and deepening prayer practices when I talk about sustaining practices, this is what most of us do first thing in the morning. We get up and we have 15, maybe 20 minutes with the Lord. We're doing our read through the Bible plan. and We've got a list of people that we're praying for and we work through those things every day. We let the Lord know what's ahead of us in our day and what kind of help we need. And that is a sustaining conversation with the Lord. There's another kind of conversation with the Lord that I will call a deepening practice. And the main difference between a sustaining practice and a deepening practice is simply time. A deepening practice, a deepening conversation with the Lord takes more time. If you're married, think about it this way. Every day you have conversations with your spouse, right? How was work? How were the kids? Did you remember to bring home the milk that I told you to bring home? Did you talk to your mom? How's your dad? Where's the dog? You know, those kind of conversations, right? They are everyday sustaining conversations. They are essential. You cannot run a household, stay connected without those conversations. But if your conversations are only those conversations, logistics and survival, then your relationship will not deepen in all likelihood. In fact, it may go the other way if those are the only kinds of conversations you have. So every so often, you scrape together some money, you get a babysitter, and you have a date night. Or when the kids go down, you have a long walk in the neighborhood, or you sit on the porch, and you have a longer conversation. Maybe even you get a weekend away together. Those are deepening conversations. And the big difference is, other than no kids, time, okay? Longer times for longer conversations. And because what we have with God is a relationship, 
it functions similarly to what I've just described. We need to have daily sustaining conversations with the Lord. But if that is all we have are those short morning conversations, then our relationship with God will likely not grow deeper in the way that it could if we had periodic opportunities for longer conversations in extended times of prayer. That is what Jesus is inviting us into today. Listen to his words in Mark 6. He says to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And I, I think that Jesus is after something for his disciples even beyond a nap, as restorative as that can be. I think more than physical rest here, although that's part of it, Jesus is after them getting away for some time to pray. If you read a couple verses farther down, you know that's what Jesus is after. And I think it's what he's after for his friends. Down in verse 45 and 46 of the same chapter, Mark 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, after he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. This morning, Jesus is saying to you, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. Come away and pray. The question is, will you trust him enough to take him up on that? Because when you step away to pray, you cease doing other things, right? Will you trust him enough? Will you trust his promises enough to say yes to that invitation? So let's look at some of Jesus' kind of prayer retreats that he held throughout his life. And, and it is all over his life. I'll show you a number of them this morning. Luke chapter 6. If you're following me in your Bibles, Luke chapter 6, verse 11. Um, says the Pharisees were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. And in those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So the, the setting here is that Jesus has just done a very direct, intentional, and controversial healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, who were the Sabbath protectors, were infuriated with him. And this opposition, which is soon for Jesus going to become life-threatening, in response to this opposition, Jesus chooses to spend the whole night in prayer. Okay? You, you read it right. He spent the whole night in prayer. He stayed up all night in prayer. But it, it doesn't seem to be just a response to the opposition, to increasing opposition. It also precedes one of the most critical decisions Jesus could make. You see it in that next verse there. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Okay. 
So Jesus spends a night in prayer, and then he makes a critical decision. These are the 12 men he is going to pour his life into for the next three years or so of his life, the last three years or so of his life. These are also the ones who, after he dies, will bear the ministry and carry it on. Jesus is handpicking them, and so the night before that critical decision, he spends the entire night in prayer. Similar situation in another incident in Jesus' life in Mark chapter 1. Daniel alluded to this. Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came. And he went out throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and and casting out demons. So again, we see Jesus seeking extended time with the Father. This time it's early in the morning before the sun comes up, Jesus is up and he's off by himself alone um, seeking the Father in prayer. And it again follows an exhausting day of ministry and spiritual battles with demons. And again, after this season of prayer, it launches a new direction for Jesus' ministry. Now he's going to head off into the region of Galilee and its synagogues to spread his message to those people. And this had to be really puzzling to the disciples, right? I mean, they're gathering huge crowds Everything is going their way, and they can't find Jesus, right? He's off by himself praying, and they're like, hey, everyone is looking for you. This is our moment, okay? Celebrity, fame, influence, power. What does Jesus say? We're leaving this place. We're going to go somewhere else, okay? And that decision comes out of the time he spent with the Father early in that morning. And this raises a question. How do you make big decisions? I'm, I'm, I mean like really important decisions. We call them biggins. How do you make the biggins, right? I mean like, should I marry? Should I marry this person? Um, should I take this job? Should we move? Should I go to college? What college? What church should I attend? How do you make really big, life-shaping decisions? Biggins. Would you be willing to follow the example of Jesus and spend extended time in prayer to hear from the Father about what matters to you most? See, if you don't, then you run the very real risk of running ahead of God and making plans, as Isaiah 30 said, that are not His, okay? By contrast, with the invitation that Jesus gives us, we live in a world that rarely lets you get off of the treadmill and catch your breath and pray and think deeply. We are always busy. And when we do get off the treadmill, we don't know what to do. We are always, as Neil Postman put it, trying to amuse ourselves to death, right? Um, And this has an effect on us. 
has an effect on our ability to be alone and pray with God. Uh, Microsoft did a study of 2,000 consumers. Fascinating findings, one of which was that the average human attention span has gone down. Now, that's no surprise, but in 2000, the uh, average human attention span was 12 seconds. Now, it's eight seconds, which means I'm in deep trouble because you didn't make it through my introduction, right? <laughs> but it's worse than that because, you know, do you know what scientists have discerned what the average attention of a goldfish is? It's nine seconds. Okay. We're worse than goldfish. We, we no longer have the ability to focus. Um, this is a result of living in an age where 73% of adults now use a social networking site of some kind, and the average American on those social media platforms receives about 54,000 words and 443 minutes of video every day. More than a billion tweets are sent every hour, 100,000 tweets a minute, 20 million emails were sent in the time it took me to say this sentence. 16 minutes of every hour are spent on social networking sites. That's more than a quarter of your waking life is spent on social networking sites if you're a typical American. Um, Jesus is inviting you by his example to step off the crazy, busy treadmill that is our life and give your full attention to the Father through extended times of prayer, especially when you face the biggins, right? Big decision, this is what Jesus models for us to do. We go away. We let the RPM slow down so that we can hear from God about the direction of our life. Now, there's a second incident that drove Jesus to pray that I want to... Um, us to look at this morning. It's in Matthew 14 in your Bible, if you want to turn there. In Matthew 14, King Herod has just been pressed by his wife to kill John the Baptist by beheading. We also learn in this chapter that John, or rather Herod, thinks that Jesus, when he hears about his ministry, is John the Baptist resurrected, okay? Reincarnated or such. So when Jesus uh, gets this sorrowful news about John the Baptist, you can guess what Jesus does. Right? He goes away by himself to pray. He withdraws with the Father, or at least he tries to, right? Matthew 14, uh, we pick it up in verse 13. When Jesus heard this, that meaning the news about John the Baptist and what Herod was thinking, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Um, so Jesus is pressed by the loss and the sorrow of John the Baptist's death and the impending danger that that means for him. So he withdraws to be alone, but the crowds follow him, right? Big crowds follow him. He can't get away from them. They're like first century paparazzi. They're following him everywhere. He cannot get away. Um, 
We pick up the story. Jesus, uh, let, me, let me fill you in on a little bit. Jesus, instead of fleeing the crowds, he stops and he has compassion on them and he heals their sick. And this is where he does the, the feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And as soon as he does this and he sends the crowd away, we pick it up in verse 22. Immediately after that, he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus persisted in this. He needed to get away with the Father. And even though he had to delay it for a day of ministry to this massive crowd of more than 5,000, um, he, he persists in it. You know, I imagine that the news about John the Baptist's death was really a, was sad news for Jesus. Uh, John had baptized Jesus. Um, he, had, he was the first one to point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he, and he shared that message with some who would be Jesus' disciples. And Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born of woman. He was a real co-laborer with Jesus in the kingdom of God. And now he's dead by, by beheading. And this has to bring to mind what Jesus knows is about to happen to him by an even crueler method. Jesus has to be thinking about the cross. And so... Bearing up under a great and impending sorrow, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, and he will not be deterred. He will seek time alone to, to cast this burden on the Father. When evening came, he was there alone. So, another question, how do you bear big burdens? I mean, when the really big disappointments and the really big sorrows that life brings to us, when they come to you what do you do when you lose the job, when you get the news from the dock and it's not good? What do you do? See, Jesus is modeling for us what we are to do, but we are being robbed by this, this practice of solitude before the Father by the pace of our life. Sherry Turkle is a professor, a professor of, uh, at MIT and she interviews lots of people about their daily fixations on social media and such. And uh, in an interview with Scientific American, she's worried that there's one hidden cost to our addiction to technology, and that's the loss of solitude. And she says fascinating things. She says, I do some of my field work at stop signs and checkout lines in supermarkets. She says, give people even a second, like at a stoplight, and she says, and they're doing something on their phone. Every bit of research, she says, says people's capacity to simply be alone is disappearing. And she says that solitude is a precondition of having a conversation with yourself. The capacity to be with yourself and discover yourself is the bedrock of development. But now from the youngest age of two, three, or even four, children are given technology that removes solitude by giving them something externally distracting. She says that makes it harder, ironically, to form true relationships. She says, I have so many examples of children who will be talking with their parents. Something will come up and the parent will go online to search and the kids will say, Daddy, stop Googling. I just want to talk to you. While her insights are spot on in some regards as it returns to uh, our relationships, there's something that she does not see. 
and that is that our shrinking capacity to be alone is not just costing us the ability to have a conversation with ourselves; it's costing us the ability to have a conversation with God and to hear from Him about the things that matter most to us. So we're not just losing the capacity for relationship with others. We're shrinking our capacity to draw near to God as our Father and be comforted by His presence in our lives and our world. This is why Peter says, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Extended times alone with Him are the way that Jesus is modeling for us to bear those sorrows and to give them to the Father. Time alone. Now, there's another fascinating prayer retreat. These are all over Jesus' ministry. I'll show you a handful this morning in Luke chapter 5. It says, Even more, the report about Jesus went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We see the crowds. Again, we know these are are huge crowds. These are not 50 people. It's not 500 people. This could be 5,000 people. They're, They're following Jesus. They're dogging Jesus. And Jesus is relentlessly compassionate and caring. He heals their sickness and he teaches them. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, Luke says. Some of your translations in your Bible insert the word, he would often withdraw. And that's the idea here. This was Jesus' pattern. The crowds are following him. He would steal away and withdraw and seek the Father in prayer. Especially when he poured himself out when he was depleted, exhausted. What did he seek refuge in? Prayer. Restoration came through time alone with the Father. Um, Steph and I ride bikes together. We go out in the country. We live in Youngsville. We'll go out in the country and we'll ride all over the place. We do this several times a week. It's exercise and marital therapy all rolled up into one. And so we go ride ride together. We bring our bikes back and park our bikes. And uh, what I have to do at least once a week is check the tire pressure. In our, we, have, we have road bikes, really high tire pressure, 110 PSI is about where we want them to be, and I check them every week. And every week, the pressure is low. Sometimes 20 PSI, you know, more than almost 20%, the tires are low. I'm not letting the air out of the tires. I don't know what's happening to the air in the tires. It just, it just leaks out. Um, even if it just sits under our house. Um, the air leaks out. There's a guy named Mike um, Peninga, and he puts it this way. He says, life is like a bike tire. Okay? We don't intentionally take air out. It just leaves. And just as it's harder to paddle with, with flat tires or to pedal with flat tires, it's not as fun to live when the air has leaked out of our lives. We don't know where it goes or how. Life just has a way of deflating us. Um, it goes like this. You have a difficult conversation with somebody, little air leaks out, right? You have a hard day at work, little more air leaks out. You get uber crazy busy, little more air leaks out. The next thing you know, you're paddling with flat tires. Um, He says, where in my life am I being reinflated? 
Where am I pausing long enough to fill my tires? So that's the question. What do you do when you're really spent? Where do you go to get replenished? To get air back in your tires, in your soul, so to speak. Um, the, the temptation, again, is we tend to look to technology. We want to sit down and watch a movie or a game or a, or a show, or we want to get on Facebook. You know, we just want to veg as though that's going to re- replenish us. Um, and these things can help you relax a little bit, but they cannot restore your soul. We hope they will. Sometimes they promise that or something close. But, but when technology promises to restore us or replenish us at our deepest levels, it's like this sign. <laughs> Airboat rides, nine to five, open seven days, close Thursday, Right? They make promises that they can't keep, okay? And we live on Thursday with our technology. It does not follow through on our hopes and its promises that it's going to replenish us and restore us. It's like a vacation, okay? You go on a family vacation. What do you say when you get back? Man, I need a vacation to recover from my vacation, right? Because because we are so busy, even, even in our downtime. Social media and entertainment sites cannot satisfy and restore your soul. Only God does that. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That's that's what satisfies deep down in here. When your resources are depleted, what are you hoping will restore you? My fear is we're looking in all the wrong places. Um, for instance, people check their cell phones an average of 34 times a day. I think that's really low. I know people who check 34 times an hour. I think I live with people who check their phones 30, 34 times an hour, right? Um, 75% of people use their cell phones in the bathroom. of women would rather leave home without makeup than without their cell phone. There are 11% of people out there who would rather leave home without pants than their cell phone. I'm not not making this up. 63% said they would rather they would climb through trash to find a lost cell phone. 25% they would physically fight a thief to get their cell phone back. And 40% said they would start to miss their phone in less than an hour. And I'm not sure we even miss God that soon. Where where are you looking to be restored deep down in here? Put on your phone and listen to Isaiah. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those, all those who wait for him. Wait for him. 
Let me show you one last one. There are others, but here's one last one from Jesus. About eight days from Luke 9, about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Okay. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Um, and while this is all happening, the disciples that he's invited up there to pray with him are sleepy, which seems to be their common uh, prayer practice uh, for the disciples. They, they get sleepy. Um, it's, we call this the transfiguration. It's a remarkable encounter that reveals Christ's glory. Moses and Elijah come to minister to him in light of the coming suffering that he's facing in Jerusalem on the cross and to affirm his identity as the one chosen by God to bear the sins of the world. Um, then as Peter responds, as Peter wakes up and responds, and, and then, the, then this happens in verse 34, it says, um, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. This cloud commonly in the Bible represents God's presence, and the Father's voice is heard affirming the Son, um, and amidst all the rich, deep revelations about Jesus in this passage, don't miss that he went up on that mountain to pray and to meet with his Father and to commune with him. And the Father grants this, this blessing on him of Moses and Elijah and the shining and all that stuff, not just for the disciples, but to strengthen Christ for what he is about to face. Um, he goes up on the mountain to meet with his Father. And in all these instances, we don't really know what Jesus prayed, but we do have one instance where we have extensive prayer um, by Jesus that's actually recorded in part for us. A similar situation like this where Jesus is praying in John 17. Listen to the words of his prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, he prays, Father, the, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And um, you can just hear the love and communion flowing from father to son and son to father in Jesus' prayer. He says, I glorified you. Now you glorify me so I can glorify you. It's just this mutual loving care, father and son, for the good of the other. You hear him longing to be restored to the place in the father's presence and to the glory that he had up there before the world existed with the father. He wants to be with the Father. If Jesus, God's Son, longed for and even needed these extended times of prayer with his Father, how much more you and me? All 
all sin-riddled and crazy busy like we are. How much more? If Jesus needed this, longed for this, how much more should we? Um, There's an author. Her name is Mary Chandler McIntyre. And she says that somewhere on a dusty shelf of books I read to my children when they were young is a little volume called A Hole is to Dig. And she says each charmingly illustrated page declares the purpose of something. A pile of leaves is to jump in. A mud puddle is to slide in and go oodly, oodly, oo, and so on. Every page has something for kids. And she says the reasoning is sound if you're a child. Because the world is made for our general enjoyment and it gives us things to do and pleasures to revel in. But she says there's something rather poignant about reading the book as an adult, having developed a much more pragmatic sense of the purposes of things like holes, which are to fill in before someone trips and sues you, or piles of leaves, which are to put into plastic bags before the Thursday pickup, or mud, which is to be scraped off boots before stepping on the carpet. She says the same pragmatism turns a tired and jaundiced eye towards holes and mud seems to inform our liturgical sensibilities, she says. Reflected in churches I've attended of late on the purpose of silence, she says, silence, it seems, is to be filled. She says, though the church's long history of contemplative practice seems to suggest that there is, a, that there is some knowledge of God that can come only in stillness. Silence, large and long and intentional enough to open a sacred space for the Holy One to enter. See, from Jesus, we learn that times of silence, they're for God, okay? And we need them. Um, It's where we slow down enough to hear from Him through His Word, by His Spirit, about the condition of our lives before Him and get guidance and comfort and hope even in the hardest of times. It's how we grow deeper in our love for the Father and our Savior by the good work of the Spirit. It's fascinating for me to think about how much of this stuff is in Jesus' ministry. It's everywhere. You remember how Jesus started His ministry, His public ministry? You remember what He did first? Um, In Matthew 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And we always observe that Jesus fasted and that he was tempted. But I I would assert that in all likelihood, Jesus also prayed. Prayer is a, a constant companion almost in the scriptures with fasting. And whenever Jesus was in the wilderness alone, he was always about prayer. So I think we would say, We could say that Jesus began his ministry with 40 days of fasting and temptation and quite likely prayer. Now, how does Jesus end his ministry? What's he do on his his last night on earth before, before the cross? Well, we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? It says Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. It's how he started his ministry and it's how he ended it. And his, and his practice in between all along the way we've seen it this morning is that he regularly sought time alone, extended time alone with the Father in prayer. Jesus is extending to you an invitation 
to join him in this practice. He is saying to you, come away by yourself to a lonely place and rest a while. The question is, will you trust him enough to say yes to that invitation? And our worship team is going to come, and this song, they're going to start not by us singing it together. They're going to sing it over us as a prayer for us. And so during this time, I would invite you just to bow right where you are in your seats. And if, if you prefer, you can kneel if there's room around you to, to go to your knees and let them just sing this prayer over you. Now, while they're singing that over us, some of you are sensing a very strong pull from God that this is something you need to do. That this kind of extended time alone with the Father, you need this to be sane. And He's inviting you. It's as though this invitation has your name on it. And if that's you today, let me encourage you, during this time when the the team is leading us and we're seated, why don't you come down front here and you can bow and kneel down here if you're able. And then after the first chorus, when they're done, uh, we'll lead in prayer just for those of you down front here who sense that God is really inviting you to join him in prayer in this practice. And then then we'll all join in, in closing worship together. But if you'll bow right where you are, and then again, as the team sings, if you sense God particularly inviting you, make your way down front and we'll pray for you in just a moment.